Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, Reads a Song of Ice and Fire, episode 120, Catelyn in a Game of Thrones, the third chapter. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Yes, episode 120. 120, do not blaze it, we're not there yet. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it feels comfortable. I like being in Catelyn chapters. I do feel comfortable, maybe sad but comfortable it's it's interesting again it's like kind of a different territory trying to do something with a character who's doing a lot of the work of building the whole story and the whole world at the same time alongside their own character being built because you know we've had the luxury of westeros being built out for a lot of the characters we did recently right for davos for for ario and for aries asha all of those are kind of much later in the books davos you know, second book, but still. Yeah, there's a lot of framework in this chapter that just screams early George R.R. Martin, uh, a Game of Thrones in general. So yeah. we'll talk about that soon. Yeah, there is a bit of him finding his footing. But in terms of establishing characters and like also characters' voices, uh, I want to go to our emails and tweets of note. This one's technically not an email or a tweet. This one comes from our iTunes reviews and has been there for a while, but I, I, I wanted to bring it to light this week. Shout out to Sweet Milesia on iTunes who said that Chloe doing Jon Snow's voice is podcast gold, like in all caps, because yes, like I know that there were people who didn't love it and that's fine. You know, everyone's entitled to their own opinions. There are things that like, you know, some things that I like that other people don't like and vice versa, right? But the reason that I feel it was podcast gold is because I I feel like Chloe really did it for me from a place of love because I'm not even <laughs> sure that she fucking liked doing those voices. Like, I would stop her and literally, again, make her do quotes over entirely uh, in the John voice. So, um, thank you, sweet Malaysia, for recognizing that. Recognizing our dear Chloe. Thank you, truly, because I don't know. I've never actually thought about, did I like doing it? That's a great It's it's like, can can androids feel? Where is Chloe's agency? God. So thank you, yes, for that recognition, Eliana. That does wonders for our relationship. Yes. That that you appreciated that. That means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I grew into it. I'll yeah. be honest. You know, if we're being honest with each other on this podcast, I grew into it. I didn't love it at first. There there was many of a time that you probably didn't even hear because I'm sure Eliana had to remove a few of them where I would attempt not to do it, sometimes out of rebellion, sometimes just out of pure forgetfulness, ignorance. And uh, she would, yes, go tut tut. You must do the, the Jon Snow voice, Chloe, yep. or suffer. Send her back to her room. <laughs> Do it all over again. Thanks, sweet Malaysia. I really appreciate it. We got a message from our friend Micah over on Patreon. Micah is the guru on the minor characters, but he wanted to shout out a fact in this chapter. I thought it was pretty relevant to bring up regarding the cat's paw, specifically being called a cat's paw when it's Joffrey, a lion, who sends him to kill Bran. Not a big catch, but just something recently figured out. I love that, especially in light of, you know, also Cat's paw. Yes, it is Cat's paw that gets injured. 
you know, I like the wordplay from George on those, right? Like the Catalanes and the yes, the kettle kettlewents or kettle blacks or whatever you want to call them, whatever we're calling them. Yeah, and it's it's George really does love his puns. Y'all think I love puns? Uh, read the book series. <laughs> <laughs> read the books. Utter Shed is one of the <laughs> names of a character. Um, what else? Yeah, the yeah. cat's paw stuff. There's layers, you know, like onions. I want... I didn't know I wanted this until this moment. I want George to put a Shrek reference into Song of Ice and Fire. That's something I'm never getting. Um, I don't know why that came as a as a desire just now. I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't know if you've seen Shrek the musical, but Shrek is pretty much Sandor Clegane. Isn't Shrek already a musical? Maybe it's not. No, no. I'm just thinking that Smash Mouth makes it a musical. <laughs> no, they have and holding on to a oh, holding wait, out for yeah, a hero. Yeah, that's right. And at the yeah. end, yeah. Uh, they have musical numbers, but it is not You're largely right. a musical. But Shrek does have a musical, an actual musical. I don't know oh. if it's still on Netflix. I spent a good amount of time <laughs> watching it on Netflix personally. There are there's a song that is. <sighs> I, I didn't know. <laughs> Oh, yes. And there is a song that is absolutely very much like a has all these lyrics that could be could be Sandor Clegane. Straight up. I, I mean, don't remember what yeah, it's called, Shrek but I do recommend Sandor. it. Check it out. Uh, Sandor is Shrek is hell. Shrek is kind of Sandor. Are you are you into Shrek? Oh, I love Shrek. I respect good cinema. Do you see his green skin all mottled mm. and scarred? Mm, yeah. That's the deadliest stick if I ever heard one. Um, oh, my God. Well, with that, thanks again, Micah, for the email that somehow led us into talking about Shrek. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sorry. We have a lightning round today. Our lightning rounds, of course, give us a little bit of filler info of what we missed as we go from POV chapter to POV chapter. And today it's kind of chunky, right? We're in a Game Mm -hmm. of Thrones. We have a good stretch of chapters. We're getting warmed up for Clash and for Storm someday. But first, we have Arya 1. Feeling a bit sidelined, Arya doesn't know if she'll ever understand needlework. She joins her half-brother, John, who makes her feel a bit better as they watch the boys at play in the yard. Brand 2. Brandon Stark sat on a wall. Brandon Stark had a great wall. All the king's horses and all the king's men left Winterfell. (laughs) (laughs) They did! Oh shit, they did! Eliana, improv queen. Tyrion won. Tyrion tries to convince his royal nephew to offer his grace to the Starks in their hour of need. He declines. He breaks his fast with his brother and sister, who don't seem too happy to hear Brandon Stark will live. John too. John must say several goodbyes. First, a painful goodbye to Bran. With Catelyn present. Then he has to part from Rob and Arya as well. But not without a few last surprises. Daenerys, too. Daenerys marries Khal Drogo, exchanging her body to uphold her brother's kingly alliance. Eddard, too. Eddard and Robert stroll down memory lane. (laughs) Ow. (laughs) (sighs) Tyrion too. Tyrion and John travel to the Wall, arguing about their lifestyles along the way. And that brings us to Game of Thrones, Catelyn Three. 
Catelyn's grief in the wake of Bran's accident consumes her, until she is reawakened by an assassin bent on murdering her son. The framework of this chapter is so tight. Yeah. These were the good old days, right? Like, this is the golden era before George let his garden get a little <laughs> crazy, little massive with beautiful weeds of knowledge. I've been playing a lot of uh, The Sims 2 <laughs> I can lately. tell. I can tell sometimes. And my sims have been doing a lot of gardening. And let me tell you, it's not a bad thing. I love how much gardening they're doing. But it's gotten to a point where it takes them all day, right, to do their garden. And by the time they're done tending their garden, it grows all over again. And that's where George sometimes finds himself. It's not a bad thing. Sometimes we get the most beautiful flowers out of it. But we appreciate the simplicity here, right? The minimalism. Uh, It's a very sad chapter, but also a very fast chapter. Catelyn starts in immense grief over Bran, refusing to move. The assassin shows up, which forces her hands, literally, and by the end of chapter, she's back in action. Boom, boom, boom. It's tight, it's detailed, it sets the plot in motion, and it's fast moving. Honestly, a lot of Cat's chapters are like that. And mm-hmm. and I think These that's These early of, chapters. Yeah, what makes them really strong, especially here in the first book. And uh, we get we get a bit of setting of the time, right? It's been over a week since Ned and the girls left, and that helps us sort of figure out where we are in the story. Maester Lewin finally dares to enter Bran's sick room uh, with a reading lamp and some accounting books. He tells Catelyn, like, we need to review the figures after the royals visited. But Catelyn only has eyes for Bran, who is comatose in the bed with his hair growing long. And she thinks she's going to have to cut it soon and tells Maester Lewin that... No, she doesn't wish to see the figures. Yeah, there's this line. She already knows what the visit costs them. And it's it's everything, right? It feels like she's lost everything right now. It has. I mean, Bran and, and the rest of her family all gone. And just to give another sense of time of how intense Catelyn's mourning has been, but also how long Bran's been in a coma. And to give you a sense of like... Why is Catelyn at this state and completely spiraling? Like, it says that she's here that it's been over a week since Ned and the girls left. So we don't have a set set number of days. That shows that she's using count of days. But also it's been much more than over over a week, right? By the time that John visits Bran uh, before he heads to the wall, that's already been about a fortnight, he says, that Bran's been in that coma. So that's like two weeks. And who knows how long ago that was, but... And, you know, we do see Kat for a pretty significant portion of that chapter. But John obviously left before Ned and the girls did, right? So Catelyn's been in this state for a long-ass time. Um, as for the cost, again, we have Catelyn's chapters doing a lot of the foundational work in the series. And that theme of the unexpected hidden costs to what we want rears its head here, right? Coming back... Again, in the very same book with Daenerys' chapters, I would say that's one of the strongest ways that it shows up in this book. Uh, with the death of her unborn child as she tries to bring back Drogo and Miriam Osdor saying something to her, kind of like, you knew the cost, and she wonders, did I? And she thinks, maybe deep down I did. Yeah, that's something really poignant, and I think it's interesting how Catelyn evolves. I don't know. I don't know if he decided. I think George has always wanted a Stoneheart type character for Catelyn in the end. We'll talk more about that and how it relates to the 93 letter throughout her arc, I'm sure. But 
I uh, I find it interesting all the magic that is associated with these kind of exchanges for the women in the series. As you said, he kind of always wanted something, but it's interesting, as you said, that a lot of the magic does come in through women characters, but not not only, right? A lot of the Starks in general, but yeah. not quite yet for Sansa, interestingly. All the magic died for Sansa. <laughs> <laughs> So Maester Lewin tries to talk a little more sense into Kat, and she's like, no, I'm gonna need you to leave, and the steward can attend to my needs, and he's like, we don't have a steward right now, my lady. Van Poole went south to King's Landing. No! And she just wants him to go. She really doesn't care right now about the steward, about the money. She thinks, like a little gray rat, he would not let go. In the last chapter, we learn deeply that Catelyn is compassionate about Maester Lewin and his role in her life, and she trusts him in his counsel, right? Uh, She proved that and her trust in him when she strode naked from the room and the whole letter thing and letting him know all the secrets. So Lewin knows everything. He's walking around with all the knowledge in his little secret sleeves and secret brain. Right now, he wants her to do work, but she can barely hold herself together. And... She's resorting to these generalizations out of grief and anger uh, made by people all about the maesters, which is akin to Barbary's speech in A Dance with Dragons, which it seems George has kind of evolved from this. Barbary says, They heal, yes, I never said they were not subtle. They tend to us when we are sick and injured or distraught over the illness of a parent or a child. Whenever we are weakest and most duly grateful. When they fail, they console us in our grief, and we are grateful for that as well. Out of gratitude, we give them a place beneath our roof and make them privy to all our shames and secrets, a part of every council, and before long, the ruler has become the ruled. Hmm. Uh, She goes on talking about Maester Wallace, Rickard Stark's old maester before Lewin, who was the bastard of a high tower and an archmaester, and to speak about how baseborn children are quick to shed their bastard names. She goes as far to speculate he and his maester father plotted to fill Lord Rickard's ears with poisoned words as sweet as honey, and the Tolly marriage was his idea. First of all, Lewin is real, right? Like, we know Maester Lewin. We've seen him firsthand through Brand's POV now extensively. Uh, he's not a bad guy. Catelyn needs and appreciates his counsel. Catelyn doesn't feel this way about Lewin right now. She is deep within her grief, but... I find the contrast of both these characters and statements really interesting because, let's face it, Rickard Stark was war buddies, right, with Hoster and John Aaron, and they just wanted to attack and dethrone Targs and instill their king on the throne uh, yes. and fight against the injustice done. And as Catelyn and most people know, daughters are valuable coin to exchange in wartime, right? Broker deal with, uh, uses coin. She was used for coin, used as swords, basically. And I think it's a it's a really interesting comparison for these two characters for Barbary to Cat. That is an interesting comparison between the two of them, and and you can kind of see it right in the way that they are smart. They're shrewd women. They even were betrothed, well, not betrothed, but he, there was a there was a connection with the same Stark man, in a way. Mm-hmm. But as you said, there, Maester Lewin does seem trustworthy, and he kind of does die for the Starks, right? Uh, the language of the Grey Rat is interesting uh, because it is a lot like the same language that Barbary uses. I would say on a meta level, maybe like George 
went back to these scenes or something and was like, I like that and reused it, kind of giving this a, a different twist. I also want to give a quick uh, shout out. This one's a tweet of note to me. To First of all, a couple of people pointed out last week, they were quite tickled at the idea of Maester Lewin being quite swole. And David Becerra on Twitter sent us this hilarious tweet and it just killed me. Um, and, and we'll share, you can find it on our Twitter, we retweeted it, of this swole-ass Garfield with chains around him as Maester, <laughs> as Maester Lewin. It was amazing. It really was. I think that there's something really great about Barbary being compared to Catalan with their kind of shrewd mentality about politics, like you said. Uh, Barbary later stepping in as a showcase for a woman in the Mm. North who can hold her own, who has learned and rolled with the punches after being dealt with some crap, also has not come out great, you know, on the other side at the same time. She... She has a family and all, but she... What happened to Catalan with losing Brandon was kind of like that ironic luck, right, of well, I can't have him. No one does, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, haha. Like, I'm sure Barbary felt that bitterness in her mouth. Like, hmm, world's best cock. Sorry, cat. But <laughs> I don't know. I just find it interesting that she is a northern woman. And we, we think a lot about the politics in Game of Thrones of like north dumb, south smart. And that's not true. The north is different. And we see that navigated differently as we go along. And we're going to see it navigated differently through Robin Cap too here. Yeah. And I also kind of wonder as you're drawing connections between Barbary Dustin and Kat, mm-hmm. a, a way that they contrast though is he was a ward who slept with the lady of the house, whereas Catelyn, who was a, the lady, right, did not sleep with their mm-hmm. ward. Yes, that's true. It's a way that's that a their call. paths diverged. Well, mm-hmm. speaking of different Brandons right now, this is actually quite jarring. We're, we're going to jump forward back to now. This Brandon, who's a little boy, Looks quite pale, and Catelyn thinks about moving him under the window for some sun. Why? You think he needs some chlorophyll, Catelyn? Yeah. It's a good call, because your tree sun needs to fucking eat. Uh, in Out of context, like, just pulling, like, I need to move him under the window for sun. I'm like, just hold your horses for four more books, okay? That is kind uh. of, yeah, that is how we feel about plants. We're like, oh, what's wrong with the plant? I'm imagining, like... <clears throat> Brandon's like a little chlorophyll, like opening and closing, like the stomata, like of his arms. Like <laughs> That's a, exactly how plants like make their leaf. food. Good yeah, job. Exactly. <sighs> Lewin uh, tries to reach Cat once more, tells her, You have several appointments to attend to a new captain of guards, a master of horse. And she retorts, she cracks. Her voice is sharp as a whip and says, My son lies here dying and broken, and you mean to discuss a master of horse with me? She says, do you think I care what happens in the stables? Do you think it matters to me? One wit? I would gladly butcher every horse in Winterfell with my own hands if it would open Bran's eyes. Do you understand that? Do you? <sighs> so sad because like this is such a mean way that George formats this chapter because he establishes Kat's grief through this because mm-hmm. the end of the chapter, she very much so shows she does know what's going on and cares about what's going on in the stables when we learn about the cat's paw. But here, it's meant to establish, like, this is Catelyn lost in grief. She She's hurt. She's lashing out. 
Absolutely, and by introducing us to Cat's grief early on, it's setting the stage for what we can expect for those later Cat chapters. When she does some very drastic things to save her children, especially when she thinks that Bran's dead, right? And and the deep toll that grief is going to take on her. But it's kind of interesting, this line of, I would gladly butcher every horse in Winterfell with my own hands if it would open Bran's eyes and bring him back. Mm-hmm. It again coming back to those hidden costs of what does it mean? It makes me think again of Daenerys yes. being like, you know, fuck it. I know that Drogo's horse is very sacred in the culture, but if it will bring him back to me, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. I immediately thought only only death can take a life. Well, <sighs> Bran turns out will will survive, but she doesn't know that. <laughs> she won't. <sighs> wow that's sad okay anyways things that are uh, also sad the battle is about to go on between her and Lewin and arguments but Rob enters and he says it's okay I will make the appointments he's taking responsibility on and and Kat suddenly realizes shamefully she's like she's been shouting she's like why am I shouting and we have this line of <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a surprise <laughs> life's like that man sometimes i'm just like why am i crying right now huh i don't know oh yeah that's true especially i mean actually it's not just especially not just in general right now she yeah the, the line is she was so tired and her head hurt all of the time haha <laughs> this is a serious mood uh, lewin gives rob a list of men to consider for the vacant offices and rob says they'll discuss them in the morning and to leave them for now his cheeks are pink from cold, his hair is shaggy, windblown. He closes the door behind them and turns to his mother, asking what she's doing. She realizes he's wearing a sword. She always thought he looked like her, like Bran, Rickon, and Sansa, but now she sees her husband in his face, stern, hard, like the North. This is Rob growing up, right? It's his lord face. He's He's starting to separate his family from childhood and from lordship and from ruling, and he's starting to take on that role already. I also do want to come back to Lewin's sleeves here. He puts the paper back into his sleeve. Uh, he goes, very good, my lord, and puts the paper. It says, the paper vanished into his sleeve. So yes, his magical sleeves have returned yeah, to the page. But the paper's <laughs> not heavy, you know? The paper's not going to give him muscles. Other things are in there. How many papers is Lewin holding? I mean, probably a lot, because Catelyn has been out of it for two weeks. It's true, he's probably got full-on binders in there. And yeah, he's got Rob. many binders. Rob. Yeah, like she, his mother, right, asks him. She doesn't understand how Rob can ask her what she's doing. And she goes, I am taking care of your brother. I am taking care of Bran. Is that what you call it? You haven't left this room since Bran was hurt. You didn't even come to the gate where father and the girls went south. I said my farewells to them from here and watched them ride out from that window. Catelyn, that's not the fucking same. I know, right? She's so out of yeah. it, she doesn't realize that's not even saying bye. That she couldn't, I mean, Bran wasn't going to wake up. And I think not she yet. was worried yeah. more about that. Uh, she begged Ned not to leave after what had happened. Everything had changed, right? She had begged him so much. And that's the saddest part that, yes, everything had changed. But 
The stone's already been cast. The decision was made. This line is so heartbreaking. It has to be included because it's just so sad. Mm -hmm. He had no choice, he had told her, and then he left, choosing. (laughs) It's got such a strong connection to that Brienne line that everyone, of course, knows the no chance and no choice. And because of that, it really shows, you know, to an extent, obviously, the characters have choices in world, right? I mean, obviously, it doesn't, the ink is dry, uh, except for book six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, so on, right? (laughs) Um, But George knew what he wanted to say and and what the characters had to do. And it's this kind of idea of like, do we choose or is it like, do we just do this because it's who we are? But I also want to call out this moment here for my own other reasons. You know, obviously, while Kat is imperfect, which, of course, is the point, right? That's something that George is passionate about in regards to these characters. I often see people lay the blame for Ned going south at Kat's feet because of the events of the previous chapter, where, yes, the writing does focus that exchange between them while glossing over this moment, say, where Kat is telling Ned now, and she begs him, right? Which seems so much more impassioned, so much more fervent, even though we don't get to see it on screen, than perhaps mm-hmm. what happened in the previous chapter. And and people will say that Kat telling Ned not to go south is a show-only invention, but here it is in the books. It's not. And Kat's intuition, which obviously, you know, is not, like, in tip-top shape right now, but somehow that kind of works out to her benefit anyway uh, in this chapter, it's right, right, in telling Ned, you know what, going south is a mistake. And the language here shows that ultimately it is Ned's choice to go south. And again, Ned gets to make the final say in their Westerosi house. Yeah, it, it is Ned's word at the end of the day. She has no control, no way. And there is something about the way that this chapter goes on, even with that in mind, that with Ned not there, she starts to make those calls once she does wake up after the assault. Yeah. She kind of puts her pedal to the metal and is like, all right, time to make some choices. We're here, obviously. Uh, she begged everything to stop changing, right? Like, that's the biggest thing. Everything is changing at rapid speeds right now. Everything is revolving and she's just sitting here begging for it all to stop. And then there's a force that makes her change with it. Absolutely. It's it's a turning of the seasons for all of Westeros, mm-hmm. not just for the children growing up. Catelyn holds Bran's hand, so frail, so thin, no strength in it, but she feels warmth in his skin. She tells Rob she couldn't leave him, not when any moment could be his last. Rob's voice softens, and he tells her, Lewin says the greatest bit of danger is past. He won't die. But she asks, what if Lewin's wrong? What if he needs me and I'm not there? Isn't that kind of the greatest worst part of motherhood, I guess, huh? That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Rob changes his tone kind of sharply and tells her, Rickon needs you. He thinks he's been deserted. He follows me all day, clutching my leg. Rob has no clue what to do about all that. He chews on his lip like he did when he was younger and he tells her, I need you too. I can't do it all by myself. She remembers through her grief suddenly he's only 14 and she wants to go to him, but Bran is still holding her hand and she cannot move. Yeah. Which is interesting because technically Bran can't be in this moment. Yeah. 
And, and it really shows that that's what she wants, right? And the language throughout this first part of Kat's chapter does such a great job of showing and not telling us Kat's mental state. Both Ned and Kat, I think, serve as great introductions or examples to George's use of unreliable narrators. I know they're not the first touch points people go to, but I mean, for Ned, right? We talked about this a lot way, way, way back then. Not in episode 120, maybe episodes 1, 2, 3, and 4 <laughs> of Girls Gone Canon, right? That That... Ned is hiding John's parentage from himself and therefore from the reader. And until the second half of this chapter, Kat believes her actions are rational uh, in terms of her motivations. And the way that George demonstrates her mental state is quite contrary to the cat that we had in the previous two chapters, who really just thinks things through, analyzes all this information, right? Uh, is looking at the bigger picture. And a lot of the language here is just her only passively hearing what other characters are saying in terms of her responsibilities, but the narration itself doesn't address what they're saying, or other characters show the unreliable nature of Catelyn, right? Because Catelyn in her head can see why she's doing it, and she's like, why can't they see? But the other characters are telling her, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and one of the best examples of how the text shows us the way that Cat isn't processing things early on in this chapter, and I love this, where... Um, you know, she's like, let the steward take care of it. And Lewin says, Poole went south to establish Lord Edward's household at King's Landing. Catelyn nodded absently. Oh yes, I remember. Bran looked so pale, she wondered whether they might move his bed under the window so he could get the morning sun, as, as Chloe was talking about earlier. And though she, like, responds to Maester Lewin, obviously her mind is somewhere else entirely. She doesn't think about anything that Maester Lewin said just now. And here with Rob, even though her eldest son is speaking and pleading with her, she's not really processing what he's saying or his body language, just kind of seeing him, whereas later on she really sees him and understands and notices how he's changing. Those are really great observations. She is a completely different... Uh... A cat of a different coat in mm. the beginning of the chapter, you could say. Hmm. And later on, she's gonna bow so low, I guess. Get skinned? Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> Outside, one of the wolves begins to howl. She trembles. Rob says it's brands. He opens the window, letting the night air in, and the melancholy wolf song as well. She tells him not to and that Bran needs to stay warm, but Rob says he needs to hear them sing. A second wolf joins in. Then a third, Shaggy Dog and Greywind, Rob says, and that you can tell them apart if you listen close. I love this line because I'm a, a personal believer that Rob was actually quite adept at being a Borg. I think he was better than John. Um, obviously no one's as good as Bran because that's like the whole point of the story, but I think he did, <laughs> he did have, uh, some control over it and we'll see that more as the chapters go on, but I feel like this is a hint that he can tell their voices apart and that all of them can. Yeah, Rob ends up being very in tune with his northern self, right? Like with the northern side of himself. With dogs. Uh, and I think there's even kind of, to an extent, a lot of cattle in projecting those feelings of isolation onto her kids, where mm. Sansa, for example, is more southern than Catelyn could ever hope she would have to be, right? Like, Catelyn's like, good job, go breathe over there, you did great, I don't have to work on you anymore. Uh, and Rob, in her head, maybe she always just was like, you know, maybe if you guys and me are together and look the same and no one accepts you, we'll at least be rejected together, you know, in the heart of hearts and... Here she's realizing throughout the chapter, no, 
it's just her all alone. Yeah. And and that was her fear in the last chapter. She's like, wow, we're going to be in a long-distance relationship. They don't have uh, yeah. the internet. They don't even know how to use the weirwoods to talk to each other. Um, Not yet. <laughs> Catelyn shakes from grief, from cold, from the howl of the wolves, which never ended every night. And Bran still lies there, broken. And she thinks of how he had been the sweetest of her children, who loved to climb, and who wanted to be a knight. And all of that is gone now, and she thinks that she's never going to hear him laugh again. And you know what? Interestingly, this does, in fact, end up being true, but... Okay, <laughs> Satan. Wow. <laughs> that was uncalled for. Who the hell hurt you? What a- the fuck? <laughs> is this maybe gallows humor? Which I think has a double meaning with this character? I'm going to ruin the joke by explaining it? I can't even fire you because I'm so disappointed in you. She's too she's too sad. She can't say anything. She's gonna just sob like Catelyn here. <laughs> Cover her ears. Cry out to make me stop. Yep, and that she can't stand it. And she's like, kill Eliana if you must, but make it stop. <laughs> Actually Kat says this about the wolves, not not about me. Catelyn doesn't remember falling to the floor, but Rob is lifting her, helping her to her bed in the sick room. He tells her to rest that Lewin says she hasn't slept at all, and she's like, I can't. What if he dies? What if he dies? What if he dies? (laughs) The wolves continue to howl, and she screams. She begs him to close the window, and he says he will if she sleeps, but as he reaches for the window, another noise joins the chorus of wolves. Dogs. They've never done that before. When he looks back up, his face is pale. Fire, he whispers. She springs immediately into action, asking him, Help me with Bran, but he doesn't seem to hear her. It's the library tower on fire, he says. Which, by the way, is probably not the only library that's going to catch fire in this series. Ah, All those beautiful big books. Sad. Catelyn sags with relief when she hears it's the library, though. <laughs> she's like, uh, fuck those books. She's like, fuck them books. books as long as for it's- nerds. She's out there hanging out with Ariane Martel. She's like, <laughs> fuck them books. Uh, no, obviously she's only in a one-track brand mind right now. And Rob's like, what the fuck, mom? There is still a fucking fire. Like, just because it's not here, you still should be a little concerned. And he's like, stay put while I go deal with this. Shouts of fire start to ring in the yard, frightened horses, barking dogs, but the howling stopped. Catelyn said a silent prayer of thanks to the seven, going to the window, watching the smoke rise, and thinking sadly of all the books the Starks gathered being gone. Now she thinks the books. I I get why there are 18-part series about Catelyn sucking now, up here. (laughs) Book burning. Book burner Catelyn Stark. She's like, books. (laughs) Rim turns around. Rim. Oh my god. Wow. Sure is real sad about all those books. If only we could just buy more with all our money. (sighs) Well, some of those might be like, what, the only version of that book ever. But you know, whatever. You know, again, books are for nerds. Sad girl hours only, as you said. That that killed me. That Ariane Martell (laughs) killed me. (laughs) I thought you'd like that. She's out there like, fuck them books. They're both in towers being sad. 
Yeah, and you know, this actually kind of reminds me a little bit of Sansa at the Blackwater, too, with all the smoke rising and turning mm. from the tower, uh, even down to what is about to happen, right? That she turns and a drunk, dirty, gross man is there, which is what happens to Sansa Stark <laughs> oh in the God. Blackwater. I mean, I'm not wrong. This is true. <laughs> it's Shrek. Uh, it's Shrek. It's Shrek. Oh, my God. Shrek Shrek's here. <laughs> Never mind. Catelyn does shut the windows, and when she turns, there is a man. Like I said, dirty, small, he stinks of horses. She knows the men who work in their stables, and he's not one of them. Uh, right before this, in her grief, Catelyn shut the windows, right? Not wanting to see the fire, wanting to block it out, wanting to only be with Bran, ignoring what else is happening. But she is quickly awakened from that. Yes. And this actually goes to show how uncharacteristic the spell that's going on with Catelyn is, right? Because as we said previously... Ned trusted Catelyn to be capable with running the household, usually including its finances, and that she thinks here that she knows everyone who works at the stables and does not know this man shows that her outburst earlier about who fucking cares about who's the master of the horse, like, is not typical for her and for how conscientious she usually is in maintaining Winterfell. The difference is staggering when Catelyn's on versus when she's off, and I'm kind of still reeling that this is one chapter because it's two different Catalans we see from the start till the end. Yeah, and and that's true of this whole technically this whole series. <laughs> two different Shut up, Catalans. Eliana. Shut up, Eliana. Oh my god. Jesus. <sighs> I know, it's Lady Stoneheart, not Jesus. I get it. The man mutters that she wasn't supposed to be here, dagger in his hand, and Cat looks at the knife, and then to Bran, and she goes, no. And he must have heard her because he responds to her like that it's a mercy. He's dead already. And she says no again, and that he can't. And that that line of it's a mercy, he's dead already feels very important. I can just imagine you change that pronoun a little of it's a mercy, she's dead already, which is technically true of that other Catelyn that we meet. Do you know where the heart is, girl? Mm, mercy, mercy, mercy. Yeah. I, I, look, we are building up to something big. During Davos, we waited and let the world have it at the very end. You know, the good stuff, the the discussion on Davos's future, and I think that we'll talk about the big good mercy stuff as we get toward the end of Catelyn. So buckle up. Tons of months to go, like eight, nine months to go, we're gonna have a Lady Stoneheart yep. baby together. But if you're shrewd, <sighs> Chloe's already put this out on the internet. Yeah, and if you're even more shrewd than that, like Miss Catelyn Stark you will know that uh, we're adding to that theory as we go. Mm-hmm. We're on a journey. A journey, an arc, the friends we made along the way. So Catelyn spins toward the window to scream for help, but this man moves quickly, clamping a hand over her mouth and yanking back her head. He brings a dagger to her windpipe, his stench overwhelming her, and she reaches up with all of her might to grab the blade with both hands and pull it away from her throat. Interesting, interesting actions, but... Do you think that Catelyn's stench, like, do you think that they both have, like, a force field of stenches right now? Because Cat's, like, super stinky right now. Like, she hasn't bathed in so long. She's nasty. Like, are there force fields just butting up against each other, trying to break through as they fight? <sighs> I think that like her, adrenaline is, her adrenaline is probably blurring it out right now. Mm. However, I think she is actually the most disadvantaged here because Catelyn is the least, uh, she's, well, okay, but she's a mother, so she's dealt with smells, right, yeah. her whole life. However, I'd say that she's probably less, 
Like, this man mm. has slept in the stable for weeks, we come to learn. So, like, he's used to bad smell right now. He's good. Right. He's Gucci. But her, she's waking up out of her own mini psyche coma right now. So she's probably, like, her adrenaline's going to blur it out. But when she comes out of this in a few minutes, she's going to be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Well, what? What is going on? This is disgusting. Why does everything smell like this? So that's my, that's my yeah. personal take. I think she smells worse than that guy, but as you said, he has a higher tolerance. I'm surprised we don't have a moment in this chapter. She wakes up, you know, she sniffs her armpits, and I was like, oh my god. That's what I, I would know do. that she would smell worse than him, though. She's sleeping really? in new sheets every day in a, in a room. I mean. I guess. He's sleeping in a stable. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm just saying. You're right. Uh, it's a class thing, Eliana. Okay, this is classism 101. I'm just kidding. I was just, yeah. Anyway. I, it was a, it was a thing, a discussion. I wanted to go explore. We did. We explored. Catalan hears the man cursing in her ear. Her fingers are wet and slippery with blood, but she won't let go. She twists to the side, trying to get a piece of the man's flesh between her teeth, and bites down hard, grinding her teeth together and tearing. And he lets go while the taste of his blood fills her mouth. Yeah, and while Catalan might be a Tully. There is very much, I, in my opinion, quite Starkish about her. There's a lot of mother wolf imagery here in her actions. Yeah, and it even kind of brings to mind uh, Brienne in this mm, moment, right? Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. the tearing with the teeth and the biting, especially with that happening to Brienne's face later on. But she also does some biting in her battle and doesn't want to let go either. Yes. Well, we have this quote. She sucked in air and screamed, and he grabbed her hair and pulled her away from him. And she stumbled and went down, and then he was standing over her, breathing hard, shaking. He repeats, you weren't supposed to be here stupidly, and I, that's just such a haunting refrain here. Um, and Kat sees a shadow suddenly slip through the door behind him. A low rumble calls... It's a whisper of a threat, and the man begins to turn just as the wolf makes its leap, and then they go down together, sprawled over Cat, and then the wolf takes out half his throat, and, like, the blood is, like, warm rain on her face. A lot's oh. happening. A lot's happening for Catelyn right now. The wolf is looking at her, its eyes glowing gold, and it is, of course, Bran's wolf. I kind of forgot Bran hadn't yet named Summer, that this is just a wolf. Not Summer, it's just a wolf. Yeah, it, it's got big dog vibes, right? Dog from, from A Feast for Crows, not the other dog with the locust. Oh, not locust from nope. A Dance with Dubada. Septon Maribald's uh, friend. My friend, too. <laughs> well, soon enough it will be summer. This wolf will become summer. And I think that's really fitting, right? The boy who almost fell but flew. Bran mm. the Rebuilder, the king who was once thought to be dead, that he doesn't uh, name his wolf until after his big third eye opening. It's kind of mm -hmm. fun. So reminds me a little of the free folk not naming their kids till later. That is interesting. I didn't think about that, but it's kind of like that now. too. <laughs> huh. uh, we're nice we're building thought. on nice this thought, journey Eliana. together, Chloe, as you said. Well, Catelyn thinks the wolf partially by feeding it her blood. Maybe I don't know. She lifts her hand towards it. It looks at her blood, cleaning up her hand, and silently then jumps up to lie by Bran's bed. And this is my personal opinion. But letting the wolf eat up her blood, like, that that seems like a big red flag. Like, that, you don't do that. Like, don't train the dog to eat human blood. I, I, thoughts? Oh. I, I thought opposite. I thought it, I don't think it was, like, eating it so much. 
I mean, it's also a wolf, so what do you want it to do? Go make a fucking four-course vegetarian vegan meal, Eliana? Yeah, dude, uh, the wolf should know that she needs a bath and oh bathe her. But I, I took it more for that, right? Like, right, dogs have words. cleansing properties when licking, right? They have microbial properties in their tongue or whatever. People tell you to make it okay that dogs lick you or some shit. Ugh. Yeah, but, but not, like, uh, <laughs> my blood, right? And especially because we know that there's the risk of brand make- breaking those taboos later. That's true, I suppose. I didn't see it that way just because, like, I just figured her wounds are open as hell and this wolf was like, I- I'll fix you. I just don't want to take any risks that they'll think I'm delicious. Well, we both have wild takes <laughs> on it and that's what I like about you, Eliana. <laughs> well, Catelyn uh, begins to laugh hysterically, maybe at us, maybe at what's going on here. Uh, and that's the way that Rob, Lewin, and Roderick find her. And I thought that language was interesting. Reminds me of little of Ned's fever dream. Of uh, That's mm. how they found him at the Tower of Joy. Okay. Anyways, when the laughter finally dies down, they take her off to her quarters where old Nan undresses her and gets her into a bath, finally. And then Lewin arrives to dress her wounds and her hands were cut nearly to the bone, her scalp raw and bleeding weird. <laughs> The cat's paw pulled out part of her hair, and then she tastes some milk of the poppy because Lewin's like, you know, the pain's just only started. Oh my god, that is for sure, and I'm in pain just hearing it. I don't know if you're that kind of person like I am, but when I even hear about pain, it just makes me go, get the something's, Yeah, it makes like my legs feel like jelly. I'm sensitive, you know, I'm just very sensitive, I'm fragile, if you haven't learned this about me. She is. Uh, <laughs> Something interesting here is that we talked about how in A Dance with Dragons, Barbary Dustin gets that similar language of the gray rat of the maester that George probably went, ah, I like that language, let's bring it back. But George actually comes back to this chapter in a couple other ways. He uses the Catalan Three imagery and reflects it strongly in The Red Wedding. But bit by bit, it's it's actually close to one-to-one, right? Uh, the wolf taking out the assassin's throat, red blood raining down, like Catalin cutting Jingle Bell's throat and red blood raining down, or her neck. Mm-hmm. Her hands cut to the bone, her neck cut to the bone later. One hand clamped down over her mouth and yanked back her head. The other brought the dagger up to her windpipe. Even down to her hair being partially pulled out, yes. right? As they pull her hair back and uh, yank her head up. Ned loves my hair. And there's even a little bit of earlier where Catalan was screaming for someone to make it stop about these wolves howling. Her wanting it to stop later when the bells are ringing, ringing in her head. All her babes, Ned. In the literal sense, there's something big here about Grey Wind uh, and the wolves in general being rejected and how it brings harm into the children, right? Like, by choosing the political sequence later of not bringing Grey Wind in. Uh, Grey Wind probably could have done a lot of damage at the Red Wedding and helped them, but maybe not enough. And rejecting the wolves in general seems to be a really strong theme for the children having harm come to them, right? Like Ned and Sansa with Lady. Between Catelyn 3 and Catelyn 4, almost simultaneously, Ned is killing Sansa's wolf. Catelyn comes to the realization of how important Summer is in this scenario here, but Eddard doesn't really come to that same realization until Catelyn visits and tells him everything. We have this quote. So he listened, and she told it all, from the fire in the library tower to Varys and the guardsmen and Littlefinger, 
and when she was done, Eddard Stark sat dazed beside the table, the dagger in his hand. Bran's wolf had saved the boy's life, he thought dully. What was it John had said when they found the pups in the snow? Your children were meant to have these pups, my lord. And he had killed Sansa's. And for what? Was it guilt he was feeling? Or fear? If the gods had sent these wolves, what folly had he done? Yes, and I think that's that's such a great point. And, and Ned killing Sansa's wolf is also very much, you know, him kind of trying to silence some of the starkness in him and, and his family and things like that. Whereas, and those northern omens, whereas we see Kat, again, really, really embrace a lot of that symbolism and, again, omens of what's meant to be for these Starks. Yeah, embrace the wolf. Uh, don't kill the wolf. Kill the boy, not the wolf. Wait, no, don't Hug kill the, the boy. wolf. Shit. Put your face into its fur. <laughs> And it's floof. Just get yes. in there. Get the fur up in your nose. Take an allergy pill. Um, there's something else here that kind of interested me, which was the milk of the poppy. Catelyn doesn't necessarily have a big effect from it, right? But she is administered milk of the poppy here for her pain. And Ned is given that, obviously, in a handful of Ned POVs, right? When his leg meets a rather unfortunate accident. And then he meets a rather unfortunate kind of accident. It's all pretty tragic. But I think that Milk of the Poppy is used really interestingly in A Game of Thrones, not even looking at the scope of all of the series, uh, almost used as symbolism for clouding judgment. Mm. Pycelle gives it to John Aaron, which doesn't help anyone figure out what the fuck John Aaron was actually ill with. Right, like poison, that kind of, that milk of the poppy, like, here you go, that will help you feel better and no one will ever know that you died of poison. <laughs> Not that Pycelle, like, knew, but... He, he thought he knew. He also thought it was serious. He's like, I'm helping. <laughs> uh, Robert's given milk of the poppy after his accident to relieve mm. his pain, let him rest, which is, of course, when shit is hitting the fan in King's Landing. I always love that, that, like... The handful of chapters where Robert is on bed rest as he's dying after the boar and everything in the city is going to shit. Yeah, that's <laughs> like not Robert's whole life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bitch hasn't even died yet and everything is just like, oh, interesting. Death everywhere. <sighs> John ends up taking it for his hand, which is another good comparison and parallel to Catalan's hands in this chapter. And he has some pretty strange dreams and... Later, Daenerys, to come back to Daenerys' story, tells Caldrogo not to have milk of the poppy to help avoid infection, but he doesn't listen and he dies. Catelyn doesn't have any crazy dreams here that we know of, but she does sleep for four days, which is a major mood. I do this. Absolutely. And and maybe it's because she's, like, had a crazy enough awake time. They're like, or maybe her dreams were just <laughs> so crazy she doesn't remember them. Or maybe it's been exhausting. They all get siphoned into Bran's dreams if we want to get real tinfoily. Obviously, that's not what happens. Mm. <laughs> but these are these are all like great points. I've never really thought about how the milk of the poppy operates, but it's absolutely goes together with clouded judgment. Mm -hmm. Well, less cloudy now after four days of sleeping. One should hope, right? Uh, a cat sits up, remembering only blood and grief, but feels weak, lightheaded, and strangely just lighter. She calls for bread and honey, and Maester Lewin 
comes to help her change her bandages, and they're kind of surprised at her lucidity. And then she remembers her behavior before her, like, four-day-long nap, and she was ashamed. She feels like she let them down and vows that it would never happen again. She has to show the Northerners how strong a Tully of Riverin could be. Rob arrives with Roderick Cassell, Theon Greyjoy, and Hollis Mullen, who's announced as the new Captain of Guard by Rob. Rob is wearing boiled leather, ringmail, and his sword is at his waist. He's looking a man. No one knows who the assassin is, but they can agree he was no man of Winterfell. He had been seen around, though, in the past few weeks around the yards in Catelyn's Lake, while well, he was a king's man, or maybe with the Lannisters, and stayed after their departure. Hal says maybe, but there's just no way to know with all the strangers lately around here. Theon says the man smelled like he'd been hiding in the stables, and Catelyn asks Hal how this man could go unnoticed. Hallis Mullen is ashamed at not catching him sooner, and says, I, I just don't know, maybe Hodor saw him, he's been acting off lately. I thought that was interesting. I mean, first of all, I guess it was partially incumbent on Kat, right, to, to check in on all those. But also this detail about Hodor acting a bit off. Um, I, I never noticed it until this read of, like, this is around the time, right, that Bran's powers would be starting to awaken a little. So it just feels very hmm. pointed. It could have something to do with that. I didn't really put that together. I wondered. I did wonder. I, I just thought it was a throwaway line, but it could. It could have something to do with Bran's powers awakening. Like he can sense, like, oh, it's all happening for me, or this is the moment, right? They're connected in a way. Yeah, like it's online. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, mm -hmm. it, it turns you on remotely. Beep boo, beep boo, beep beep. <laughs> I'm always nice, Siri. <laughs> I'm just always thinking about that dial up noise, you know? I, I think of it much more. Um, maybe that's why dubstep was so big during during that time period. People were just uh, trying to shit. get back to our AOL roots. Um, our dial we millennials roots. really are the worst. We really are. Someone thought I was really twenty three recently, and that was that was cute. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so sweet. You're my favorite listener. Um, Rob adds that. Uh, they found where the man was sleeping, and he had 90 silver stags in a leather bag buried beneath the straw. And Kat bitterly says, at least my son's life was not sold for cheap. And the men don't understand. They all say it's madness to suggest that the man was paid to kill Bran, but she confirms it. Because he kept muttering, she wasn't supposed to be here. And I will say, to be fair, I would also want my own assassination attempt to be expensive. <laughs> I would too, so if you think right? about it. <laughs> right? At least splurge for a faceless man on that shit. Come on now. That's true. That's true. Uh, well. Rob doesn't understand why anyone would want to kill Bran. So Catelyn starts to play a little thought experiment. And she's like, well, Rob, why would anyone want to kill a sleeping child? Her food comes, which is actually kind of a bunch of stuff she didn't ask for. But that's okay, because she totally needs the protein. I need it. Blackberry preserves, hot bread, honey, bacon, soft-boiled egg, cheese, mint tea. And another thing she didn't order, which is Maester Lewin. He comes on down, and she asks how Bran is, but he responds unchanged. She expected the answer, but her hands throb with pain. She sends the servants away and asks if Rob has the answer yet. Rob says, someone's afraid Bran might wake up. 
of what he'll say or do of something he knows. Catalan is so proud. She turns to Hallis Mullen to command he put more guards on Bran, and she says that while Lord Eddard is away, Rob is master of Winterfell. Rob stands up a little taller at this. In terms of the asking Rob to, to work out why someone would want to kill Bran, I actually think this is a really, in my personal opinion, good example of Kat showing good parenting using this sort of semi-Socratic method here going on, right? Where she's asking Rob. She lets him come to the conclusion himself and then tells mm-hmm. him when he got it right, thus building his self-esteem for figuring it out on his own. And that that's a great example of the sort of training that Ned, of course, wanted Catelyn to give in his absence. And what I'm going to say next is going to ruin a couple of lives, but it's also kind of what Littlefinger does when he asks Sansa, all right, Sansa, so why did I do all these weird things with the Lord's Declarant in the Vale uh, toward the end of A Feast for Crows? Yeah, this is a great way of that parenting, like you said. And I, I, I think it's, I don't think it's a, big uh, negative to bring the little finger thing up because it's true. That is what he does with Sansa. He makes her go through each question and test it out. And the fact that Catelyn has returned kind of to that mindset to be able to offer that training is amazing. She's giving him this agency as well to exercise power and letting him choose to lead in teaching him a lesson. It is an active hands-on lesson. Uh, And it's sadly, as we're about to see, uh, it's what she kind of, I think, has wanted for him to an extent, but as we've seen, she isn't able to overstep her bounds. Rob tells him to put a man in the sick room, night and day, one outside, two at the bottom of the stairs. No one sees Bran without Rob or Kat's permission, and his wolf is to stay with him. Catelyn agrees so much, she she says she agrees twice. She's so happy. Mm -hmm. And again, This is that agency, right? Like, she gives the nod and says, Rob, you're the lord. You tell him exactly what it is. And he makes a good decision with how he arms the rooms with Bran. Yes, and she backs him up on it, not just that, right? Because Mm -hmm. beyond, Rob gives the go-ahead, but he doesn't say, like, the when and and things. And Kat's like, do it now, right? In order Mm -hmm. to help push that training. Yes, when Hallis leaves, Roderick asks Catelyn if she noticed the blade on the dagger used by the killer. She didn't, but they did. Valyrian steel. With the dragonbone hilt. Someone gave this man this dagger. It was not the man's dagger. Catelyn commands Rob to close the door and makes the men swear oaths to what they are about to hear. This must not leave the room. So... Cat is conscientious, as we see about getting people to swear first, right, in order to create this sort of, like, bond or sense of accountability from them before she herself makes an ask or takes action of them. And it's actually kind of similar to what she does at the end of the crossroads when she's like, all of you, you swear fealty to this house, right? Yeah, it's loyalty, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, she makes them swear loyalty because that is the honor code and the societal code that she and her family lived off of. Yeah. Uh, and... Here it works, and at the end at the crossroads, it works, but we also see it not work. You know, because she dies. I mean, in, in a very big way, yes. Yeah, a pretty pretty bad one. You know, uh, we often joke things go real good for a while and you get a bad one, but sometimes you need just, like, tiny bad things. Yeah. Actually, no, that doesn't make sense. She had tiny bad things peppered through her whole life. Never mind. I mean, it went all good for a while, then it was a bad thing, and that was the rest of the while. <laughs> it was all you know, it, fl- it fluctuated. It fluctuated. <laughs> Until it didn't. 
Um, well, in a way, this isn't the first time we're going to get oaths, right? We're going to see her mm-hmm. make Brienne swear an oath as well and charge her with some shit. Uh, charge Mr. Lannister, I've heard of him, with some stuff as well. So before we get to those oaths eventually down the line, here we have the first oaths. Theon swears, saying Ned was a second father to him. <laughs> Lewin swears, Roderick swears, and Rob as well. She then tells them, Liza believes the Lannisters murdered her husband, and she's learned Jamie didn't join the hunt when Bran had fell. When everyone was out on the hunt, Jamie was in Winterfell. He remained in the castle. Catelyn, therefore, does not believe Bran fell. He was thrown. Roderick calls it a monstrous suggestion that even the Kingslayer couldn't do that, but Theon Greyjoy wonders. Cat then says there's no limit to Lannister pride or ambition. So, as we talk about, these are those early chapters for George, and this is one of those moments where I'm like, this was written for the plot, because, I mean, Roderick's <laughs> kind of right. I'm like, that's a fucking ridiculous suggestion. It's a big-ass castle. There were a bajillion people here, right? Like, how do you just jump to uh, Jamie Lannister tried to murder my kid? And you know what? It, it ends up being true, as we all know. It is true. But it's a ridiculous fucking suggestion. It, it's a crazy thing to just jump to the conclusion of. Like, how do how do we suddenly jump to, like, yeah, Jamie Lannister threw my kid out of a window. Like, how do we know it was Jamie, right? Like, why doesn't she think it was Cersei? Cersei was here, too. But I, obviously, Jamie has a reputation preceding him. Um, at being the Kingslayer and all. But, <laughs> but like, and, and again, it did indeed happen. But there's no proof. And it, it reminds me of, like, later in this book... When Ned just suddenly jumps to, so Cersei, you and your twin brother are fucking, right? Like, and he's like, I know. And I'm like, how did you get there? How did you get there from the fucking book? Like, anyone could have given them blonde hair. And that's the conclusion he jumps to. And again, that ends up being correct because the plot, and these are not real um, and artificial constructs, but like, Jumping to, yes, I think Jamie Lannister threw my kid out of the window. Or, yes, I think that the queen is fucking her twin brother. These are not usually people's first conclusions. And I just want to say that A Song of Ice and Fire is just as much about George's growth as a writer as it is about uh, the characters themselves growing. It's such a silly jump. Like, it's so hard with no base proof that the bad show, uh, you know, the show these books were based on, they they have Catelyn find a strand of blonde hair, if yeah. you remember. Oh, no, she goes I don't up. remember, but that makes sense. I'm vaguely remembering. I'm pretty sure that there is a scene where Catelyn goes to the tower and finds a long strand of Cersei's hair. Because how the fuck do you show this on a page, you know, on screen? Like, how, how do you have her suddenly go, I think, with no evidence? And... I think George might not have known how to mold that relationship, right? Uh, that dynamic of Catelyn and Jamie or other things. Maybe this is a loose string he was playing with to help boost his later planned sexual tension as a mm. Jamie and Catelyn crack shipper that we know George is here. Right? And me. Uh, They'd have amazing <laughs> hate sex. It's canon. I mean, but let's face it here. The funniest part of these plots really is like, no, none of you are right. But you are. Like, you got right. parts of it right. And Ned figures out the incest at the end. Jamie pushed Bran out of the window. The cat's paw was sent by a Lannister. It was sent by Joffrey. It was the Lannisters all along. 
but Liza's the one who killed John Aaron. And I don't know much about the legal system as far as how, like, charging people with crimes works. Maybe Mary and Clint over at Learned Hands could help me out here, but isn't it like a thing that you could get all the evidence in the world on misdeeds by people, but if you can't use that evidence like to get them charged on the thing, if it has nothing to do with it, it doesn't matter. It's thrown out. You know, like, all these things are true on the Lannisters, but you can't charge them for murdering John Aaron through fucking and having incest babies. You know, you could get them charged for treason if that was what you were charging them for, but you guys are trying to charge them for murdering John Aaron as your big overarching plot. They aren't that stupid. They probably were just waiting a couple years until he just died. And again, I also do not know anything about the legal system, but at, at, like you were saying, right? None of these are technically col- connected to John Aaron. Maybe you could like build a case of like motivation, but also each of these are like their own separate charges, right? Like attempted murder yeah. of child, um, as you said, treason. Yeah. But, and and also even Cersei's like, I don't understand what the fuck's going on. Like, yeah, I fuck my brother, but she's not, she she must be so confused. She's like, why does everyone think I killed John Aaron? Like, no, <laughs> I just she, like orgasms. And she didn't deny it, right? She's yeah. just like, I mean, whatever. <laughs> weirdos. Um, yeah, fucking weirdos. Let me go back to fucking my brother in peace. Shit. Yeah, right? Uh, and again, <laughs> something something's up. I mean, again, as we know, Ned and Catelyn have they have their kinks. They're not like out there, but I mean, that's an exhibitionist. So maybe that's part of how he gets to the oh yes, incest conclusion. But anyway, coming back to Winterfell and and people somehow building a case against Jamie Lannister that again doesn't feel like it. It's the most logical conclusion with what we have here. Lewin thinks out loud that Bran had always been sure-handed, and Rob swears like that if this is true, he'll make them pay, and waves his sword in the air, saying that he will kill Jaime Lannister himself. And Roger commands him to put that sword away and to never draw it unless he means to use it, calling him a foolish boy, and then Rob sheets his sword and then becomes a child again. Yeah, there's something here that reminds me a lot of, you know, the the arrows words are like arrows when loosed you cannot take them back mm. kind of training when it comes to doran and Ariane, uh and even even a bit feels like a warning in face of what's to come for the Karstarks with rob right drawing it unless you mean to use it and yeah. being the man to swing the sword and what rob will come to have to pass as we get through to clash interesting I wonder if it's also a contrast to maybe some of how we see Joffrey later on, right? He yes. draws his sword out and he's like, kiss my sword, Sansa, and we're all like, whoa, bruh. It's not a toy, bro. Well, Catelyn observes to Sir Roderick that, oh, interesting, Rob has live steel now. And Roderick's like, well, I thought it was time. And Catelyn says, it is past time and that Winterfell may need its sword soon and not the wooden kind. I love this. Uh, I like the way that Rob kind of anxiously watches, like a child about to get in trouble for playing with his dad's toys, but Catelyn subverts the expectation from him, and is like, no, this is the best thing anyone's finally done. Obviously, she doesn't want Winterfell to go to war, but at this point, these actions are kind of all pointing to things going south, no pun intended. 
Whoa. Ned <laughs> just went south, literally, to the lion's den with their daughters to a place where people, possibly these people who want to kill at least one of their children live, and Ned begrudgingly accepted a job he didn't want to take. None of these things are good, right? Like, this is not going to hold up for two smart, level-headed-ish parents. They're not going to put up with this bad scenario. And now they are going to go into action, which will unfortunately kind of muck things up a little worse, as we know. But hey, what the fuck are you supposed to do? You raise your swords, you hope you can protect your people and your family and those you love in the moment. This also kind of points out in these further differences in how Ned and Catelyn want to raise their children. In this moment, Catelyn kind of gives away, personally, I want Rob prepared for the worst case scenario, where Ned dreads the worst case happening. These two kind of fight with that constantly, right? That's where their forces clash. Uh, and the boys have been fighting with wooden, blunted swords. She's throwing caution to the wind, hoping her shrewd action can save their family extra pain in the long run ahead of time. These differences we see are kind of highlighted in Arya's first chapter, right? With the Stark boys' inexperience against the strong boys. Get it? You know, the bastards in the yard, lol. Uh, at Winterfell, it feels like an analogy for Ned's relationship through his trauma with his children that he kept them on these stunted swords, which stunted them in their personal growth. It's past time. It's time for them to be armed with steel. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's one of the biggest differences between Ned and Catelyn that we see here and also in the previous chapter, right? Catelyn's very proactive. She's like, time's going to come eventually. She wants to position her family as well as she can, knowing what she knows of Westeros society. She takes action, and we see her do that in this chapter and decide that she needs to do something. Whereas Ned is very defensive. He, he's reactive to the things that happen around him and, and wants as much as possible to not have to do anything for things to kind of try and stay the same and, and to remove himself from the situations where that sort of change can happen. Yeah. Well... <sighs> Theon is killing me in this chapter. He's got yes. this, like, schoolboy earnestness. He's like, I'll save you, Mrs. Stark. <laughs> oh, he does. He says that House Greyjoy owes them a great debt. And I'm like, thinking face emoji. I'm like, interesting. Mm. It's interesting that you think that House Greyjoy owes a great debt to House Stark. Because I'm like, they kind of don't. What'd they give you? Death? They trauma? stole you? Yeah, like, yeah, like lifelong trauma? Technically, how Stark owes them agreed to, anyway. I mean, I think that might even be a nice little setup point, right? Like, how Stark gave me lifelong trauma. Let's see what I'm going to give them back next book. Haha. <laughs> right? Like, him saying Ned's like a second dad to me, I'm like, he doesn't mean that, I guess. I mean, as we see, right? And I, and I do honestly believe that about Theon's chapters, as we said. Like, he's afraid of Ned, and he, is Ned like a second father to him, and that he has daddy issues with both of them? I think so. Yeah. I think so, well, Lewin says what you and I have been saying this whole time. Uh, you guys need some proof. It's a crazy We have conjecture. This is, this is the queen and her beloved brother, they accuse. And I'm like, lol, exactly. That's the point. It's her beloved brother. Mm. Uh, mm. Sir Roderick says the proof is in the pudding. Just kidding. It's in the dagger. And she realizes someone must go to the only place we can get truth. King's Landing. Rob immediately is like, I'll go. And she's like, no, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell because she understands the importance of that. She looks around at this group wondering who best to send. 
or who would be best believed, but she knows the answer. She has to go herself. Rob is like, what the fuck, woman? You literally just said Bran can't be left alone. You lit- you just threw a tantrum about this like 20 minutes ago. What's the truth, woman? What's the truth? Technically, it was four days ago, but yes. <laughs> Basically, it's 20 minutes, minutes ago, ago for me, okay? 20 minutes ago in terms of like her waking l- life. <laughs> And it is a bit strange. I think Rob's right to call her out on that. It's he's gonna say, and it's gonna come up in like a second, right? But like, yeah, a moment ago, literally early this chapter, as you said, twenty minutes ago, uh, Rob pointed out to his mother that I mean, not just Bran, like Rob said he needs her, and thankfully for him, they do rejoin later. But it does make me think of what you were saying last chapter. About the ways that the parents disengage from their children. You're talking about Ned disengaging from Sansa, but we see Kat learning to disengage from Bran now. And in Kat's defense for what she means, like in the upcoming quote we're going to do of having done everything she can for Bran. I mean, yeah, like her being there when the cat's paw came, it it almost feels faded in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Like she was meant to be there and has done all she can for him. Uh, But also part of her doing everything that she can for Bran is going to King's Landing and it is seeking justice for her son and this attempted murder and and the actually technically two attempted murders. Bran's got a a lot of things happen for Bran. Um, That is doing something for Bran and for her family at large. And I mean, she thinks that she's prepared Rob, but I, I really do feel for Rob. He's, he's a poor boy who's been thrust into this position at 14 years old. And this chapter, again, reminds us of that. He's pleading with his mother to come back, and he's suddenly in the position of lord of a house. And not just that, like, the north, in a way. He's this parentified child for his brother. He, he has been for all of his siblings, kind of, uh, as they look up to him. And he's the one who's had to been had to have been, in a way, probably caring for his mother since his father left over a week ago. And mm-hmm. regardless of what the world asks of him, regardless of, like, Westerosi society saying he's almost a man, and we've covered this in our Sansa chapters, he isn't. He's just a boy. Yeah. I think it's apt that she did the most she could, like you said. I mean, as we're about to see, she's not wrong. What is grieving over his body going to do, waiting for him to wake up now? Uh, she she left her depression enough. She realized that this isn't going to help anyone. They have bills stacking up. They have security breaches. Uh, things aren't going... They have a burnt down library. It's not going right. great. She is not helping right now here. Her, her livelihood in Winterfell... She's not going to be able to help anyone if she stays here. She did help as much as she can. And I think she realizes she can do what she was raised to do best, right? Southern politics. None of the people in the North have what she thinks is the perfect, uh, you know, finesse on the subject. Like you said, assist in bringing justice to her family. But unfortunately, we know the story that she never gets that justice, right? Not in her living state. And those are the building blocks of Lady Stoneheart, that line where justice for your family turns into vengeance and hatred. Absolutely. Well, that brings us towards the end of this chapter. I have done everything I can for Bran, she said, laying a wounded hand on his arm. 
His life is in the hands of the gods and Maester Lewin. As you reminded me yourself, Rob, I have other children to think of now. You'll need a strong escort, my lady, Theon said. <laughs> I'll send Hal with a squad of guardsmen, Rob said. No, Catelyn said. A large party attracts unwelcome attention. I would not have the Lannisters know I'm coming. Sir Roderick protested. My lady, let me accompany you at least. The King's Road can be perilous for a woman alone. I will not be taking the King's Road, Catelyn replied. She thought for a moment, then nodded her consent. Two riders can move as fast as one, and a good deal faster than a long column burdened by wagons and wheelhouses. I will welcome your company, Sir Roderick. We will follow the White Knife down to the sea and hire a ship at White Harbor. Strong horses and brisk winds should bring us to King's Landing well ahead of Ned and the Lannisters. And then, she thought, we shall see what we shall see. <sighs> what a way to end a chapter. <laughs> we shall see what we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> fuck around and find out. <laughs> We're gonna fuck around and we sure are gonna find we out. It's gonna, gonna be a three-book process. There's gonna be a lot of finding <laughs> out. <laughs> finding out now, finding out after, finding out in the afterlife. We're still uh, waiting to find a lot of things out. It's been years. T-Wow next week. I, I, I actually really like the way that this ended with the idiom, right? Uh-huh. Especially as a callback to last chapter when Lewin produced the mirish lens. Mm. Catalan shivered. A lens is an instrument to help us see. Indeed it is. I think Catalan spends a lot of time throughout her POV trying to see people for who they are, right? She's able to perceive the truth about certain characters like Stannis and Renly uh, pretty easily, but it seems the familial close to people Characters or characters she thinks she knows are the ones that end up fooling her, like Littlefinger, Liza, and Walder Frey. So embarking on this journey to King's Landing and saying, we shall see what we shall see, once more puts sight as a theme for Catelyn, seeing as a theme. That's really interesting. Yes. And I mean, she does a lot of seeing. She does a lot of reading. She's pitted against one of the big readers in the series. And... Her judgment around those, such as Littlefinger and Liza, and sure, Walder Frey, with whom she's not close, it's clouded, right? It's like the milk of the poppy and love are the same thing, clouding her judgment about them. Yeah. As for how Catelyn's going to get south and her assertions that, you know, two people on Mount are faster, um, I will say that I think this is true. Our, our friend Maddie was streaming... Um, Game of Mountain Blade, the Song of Ice and Fire edition that mod and and it was just one person running on foot all the all the way from Harrenhal to Winterfell. And it happened very fast, and I believe that this is a factual statement that Catelyn has said based on that that single evidence that I have seen. Oh my god. It is true. I mean you don't have to stop for everyone. It's like taking a road trip with two people versus four. I mean, except this time it's like versus forty, but I mean, I think that that it sounds to me like they should be one person (laughs) just running on foot. Work for Maddie. But yeah. Oh my god. I don't know if that's how it works in real life. I mean... Uh, If you or a military member near you want to weigh in with your cavalry, please do. I mean, mean, is this real life? You know, we're just jumping to, oh yes, incest. (sighs) 
I mean, I just don't think they can get him on this. I don't think they can charge them on murdering John Aaron. You can find them guilty for incest and treason if you charge them with that, but it seems like that's not what you're trying to charge them for. Unless, well, she burned the only evidence, right? Liza's letter. Um, Because that could be submitted, but... And Pycelle. If you called in Pycelle as a witness, because Pycelle was like, yeah, I think Cersei did it, and I love her for it. (laughs) Pysel, you walk into his house. Uh, remember in Hey Arnold when Hilgaji Pataki had the shrine for Arnold? Yeah, it was the best. It's just that about Lannisters when you walk into Pycelle's room. He oh, has a yeah. Lannister shrine. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He's lucky he died before two. anyone found that. Oh my god, how humiliating. How embarrassing for you, Pycelle. <laughs> wow. <sighs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of A Song of Ice and Fire. Reread Catelyn 3 in a Game of Thrones. Uh, we will be back in April with more Catelyn. Next week, we will be back with our His Dark Materials episode. However, we'll be covering La Belle Sauvage, another few chapters, so stay tuned for that. But it is not our only Song of Ice and Fire episode left for this month. We do have a special Patreon episode for patrons $5 and up in the Stranger Tier and above with our good friend Joe Buckley. Yes, I can't wait. Uh, this is an episode that should have happened years ago. And we're making it happen now, like and we'll talk more about it. Yes, just like the Winds of Winter. I Georged this episode so hard, so I'm really excited that we get another opportunity to try to do it all over again. Can't wait to have Joe on. Make sure you check out his podcast at the Isle of Faces. He's covering scraps and scrolls from Valerie Redis from History of Westeros, and he does some great writing for them, as well as his writings over at the Tower of the Hand. And if you are free at all and in the Thunder Tier and above on Patreon.com slash GirlsGoneCanon, our Thunder Tier members, $10 and above, will have access to a Discord brunch this weekend, uh, March 21st, 2021. If you are hearing this Friday or a day or so before or after, please come join us. On the 21st of March, we'll be doing a brunch happy hour where we hang out, play some Jackbox games. There will be a giveaway of some of Song of Ice and Fire fan art, it sounds like. Lots of fun stuff happening. Yes, and yeah, it's a fun time, so please come hang out. And... You know, you can always reach us in other ways as well. If you would like on social media, you can subscribe to us or send us a tweet, right? On Twitter at girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. Or perhaps you would like to send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you and chat about your thoughts in the episode or look at pictures of your cat or yeah. your dog or, or your, your hedgehog or whatever you want to show axolotl. us. Yes, it was an axolotl fun for me to oh. see that. if you're not already subscribed to us on a podcast platform near you whatever your favorite is i don't care if you are an apple user a spotify user a google player oh that was a good one a google player uh if you're on audible or amazon we're there check it out iHeartRadio. just give us a google you'll find us somewhere near you and hit subscribe i didn't know audible did podcast i don't know we were on there that's oh we're on there We're on that one. Oh, yeah. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. (sighs) We'll see you next week. 
we shall see what we shall see. We shall see what we shall see. And it's going to be La Belle Sauvage, so maybe we won't see you next week, depending on who you are. Goodbye! Well, you- <laughs> You'll be waiting. Goodbye! <laughs>